Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week we're asking, who is Andrew Tate? Now, most of us would have come across his name after the British National and his brother were arrested in late December in Romania. They remain in custody there and face charges in relation to human trafficking, rape and organised crime. Charges they deny. Now, the case has shone a light onto the online space where influencers like Tate have thrived for some time now. Known as the Manosphere, this is a world where hyper-masculinity and extreme misogyny are encouraged. And it's one that young men in particular are engaging with in their social media feeds. So who is Andrew Tate and how has he amassed such an extensive following? What does the very existence of the Manosphere say about men in the modern world? And what lessons can be learned from his case to protect young teens? To look at all of this today, I'm joined by Dr. Debbie Ging, who's Associate Professor of Digital Media and Gender at the School of Communications in Dublin City University. Debbie, many thanks for joining us today. Now, how would you sum up who Andrew Tate is? I would say that Andrew Tate started out life as a fairly average guy. He seems to have, from what we know, a relatively troubled background. Um, He's somebody who made it financially. He's extremely savvy, I think, in a business sense. Uh, I think he understands himself very much as a brand. And at the age of 36 now, he claims to be the world's first trillionaire. So I think if you wrote a novel or you made a film, Uh, about this kind of character, featuring this kind of character, you'd probably be accused of resorting to a kind of ridiculous cliche. He's he's a kind of a parody of himself, um, but I don't think he himself would probably be wise to that irony. And and you mentioned that we do know a little bit about his background. Uh, Do you know where he's from, what he did before becoming an influencer? Yeah, I mean, we don't know that much. Um, He was born in the US, his parents divorced, and then his mother moved with the children to to Luton in the UK. So it seems that his father um, was also quite a well-known person. He was a high-profile chess player, and also it seems quite a controversial figure. He died only a few years ago. So Tate became uh, a very successful kickboxing champion. It seems also, though, by his own account, that he was bullied in school. And I think this is really um, interesting in that uh, he came home, told his father that he was being bullied in school. And his father said to him, you have a lunchbox, don't you? And, you know, that was his solution to being bullied was to retaliate with violence, to go back into school and hit his bullies, you know, with his lunchbox. And so from, a you know, a very young age, he has learned that kind of, message of toxic masculinity that you you retaliate or you deal with violence with more violence. This idea of toxic masculinity being violent, we tend to think of it as uh, violence inflicted on others. But you also have to do violence to yourself if you're being raised in this very kind of heteropatriarchal way by kind of annihilating or suppressing emotion, uh, sensitivity, empathy. So it also demands that you both desire and hate women. Um, so it's it's toxic and damaging not only to women, uh, but also to the men themselves who enter into this pact. And do we know how he became an influencer? 
So he went from a successful kickboxing career into cryptocurrency trading, then into a, a webcam business. It seems he's made some money from the fitness industry as well. So, you know, he seems to have had a finger in a lot of different pies. His social media success would seem to be due to uh, what they call kind of affiliate marketing and that he seems to have paid people to circulate a lot of his videos. So, you know, he's he's become massively famous in a very, very short space of time. But I think he's probably been working at a lot of these uh, background businesses for a long time. Well, this is it since his arrest. I know in late December, there's been a lot of talk about how he's making money. Is it genuinely possible to make this trillion dollars doing something like that on social media? To be honest, I don't know if it is or not. I mean, he he has casino businesses in Romania. He runs this uh, Hustlers University, the real world, um, it's called, which teaches uh, people wealth creation methods. So he claims to have 200,000 members. He, you know, like I say, he pays people to share his videos um, and then gives them concessionary affiliation to this uh, real world um, university, as he calls it. He also makes money from OnlyFans management. And then he has this other, what would you call it? It's like it's like some kind of uh, entrepreneurial fight club called The War Room. And that's a kind of a, an in-group or, or a, you know, a boys club uh, which is about, you know, developing business and wealth creation, networking, uh, etc. So he makes money from a lot of different um, enterprises, it would seem. And Debbie, so he does seem to be operating very nicely in this, uh, what's known as the quote unquote manosphere. Can you explain for our listeners, what is this manosphere and what types of people might you expect to find there? So in brief, the manosphere is an ecosystem of online communities which are united by various male supremacist ideologies. So it includes lots of different subgroups, um, for example, pickup artists who teach men very questionable uh, seduction techniques. It includes MIGTOs or men going their own way who advocate disassociating entirely from women. Also, traditional conservatives who would be your kind of standard anti-abortion, pro-gun ownership, anti-immigration uh, types. And then also uh, incels or involuntary celibates who believe they're denied sex due to a combination of uh, genetic disadvantage, in other words, because of their looks, and then also because of the sexual freedoms afforded uh, to women by feminism. So, you know, these communities would differ on a lot of different issues, um, but they're also all united by this common philosophy that they call the red pill. So this kind of pilling terminology um, is also widely used in alt-right contexts to describe uh, this process of enlightenment. So if you're red pilled, it means that you become enlightened to the fact that the world is in fact a gynocentric conspiracy, a misandrist conspiracy that disadvantages men unfairly and that women have now too much power um, in the world. So it's a kind of liberal feminist conspiracy effectively. So they also um, are united in their belief in ideas about gender um derived from evolutionary psychology. So, for example, they talk a lot about hypergamy, which is the idea that women seek out uh, only alpha males. 
but only 20% of the population is alpha males. So uh, they call alpha males chads as well. So chads effectively have their pick because uh, women are free now because of feminism and because of the sexual revolution. You know, according to the to the various evolutionary psychology theories, this means that uh, beta males and incels in particular are hugely um, disadvantaged. So like the right, the far right and the ultra-right, they indulge in a lot of really regressive nostalgia about a kind of pre-modern time where they believe somehow that everybody paired off with what they call their looks match and times were much uh, simpler and it was a, a much kind of fairer environment in terms of, um, again, this is all very heterosexual in terms of, you know, men and women um, hooking up with each other. What was um, so special about Tate's persona in particular that he got so high into the space? Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the things that he was saying are so deliberately controversial. You know, he he knows that conflict uh, equates with hits, in the attention economy. He really knows how to work the attention economy online. And again, that use of affiliate marketing to boost his videos uh, played a huge role as well. And also, I think because it's just, he's so outlandishly brash and crass that he he really caught people's attention. And I suppose in many ways, he's following on from a lot of the stuff that Trump was doing, but maybe to younger men, he's much more appealing, you know, he's fit, he's, he's young, uh, he's much more glamorous, obviously, than, uh, than Trump. But in many ways, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of boundaries, uh, for want of a better word, that Trump was pushing in terms of what's acceptable to say, um, you know, in the public space, he, he's kind of pushing it even further. But, you know, from a, maybe from a vulnerable male's point of view, in a much more uh, glamorous and enticing way, I guess. So, Debbie, what is the main message that Tate is spreading here? He's basically reasserting traditional patriarchal masculinity. He's calling on men to assume a position of dominance in in their um, relationships with women, whereby women would uh, resume very traditional roles of um, basically of service to men. It's a, you know, it's a outlandishly traditional reactionary, regressive call to to basically go backwards. So I think the important thing to to note, though, one of the most important things is that this is all packaged in the guise of self-improvement. But the mental health card is really just a cipher. It's how he legitimates its agenda. It's how he draws um, vulnerable boys and, and young men in. But really, you know, his core message is much more sinister, I think. It's it's part of a larger political project. So his messages are also alt-right talking points. Um, um, so there's, you know, significant overlap between um, what he has to say and this kind of greater uh, agenda and also bigger conspiracy theories about, you know, the world being a, a globalist conspiracy which you know are underpinned by uh, racism and kind of anti-progressive agendas more generally. And some of these messages are deeply problematic. I know since he was arrested at the end of December we've heard a little bit about what he has said about women who've been uh, the victims of rape for example. 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's said that women should take responsibility um, for their rape. And this is deliberate, um, you know, kind of sensational messaging, I think, for, for clicks. It's not that he doesn't believe it. He, he probably does. Um, but he's tapping into, you know, a broader mood of disaffection and misogyny when he says these things. He knows what he's doing and he says them very deliberately. So why do you think that his messages are resonating with men at this time? Well, I mean, there is a, what you might call a, a mental health crisis among a lot of um, young men in particular. Uh, white men are no longer at the centre of the world. Um, everything has shifted. Um, so, you know, a lot of men are feeling what Michael Kimmel calls uh, a deep sense of aggrieved entitlement their masculinity has been rendered visible and they're no longer entitled to things that, you know, kind of went hand in hand with traditional masculinity. We also have uh, shifted well and truly into a, a neoliberal capitalist economy. Um, that means that, you know, the workplace is very unstable for men. It's long been unstable for women, but now it's unstable for everybody. And, you know, in this gig economy, the Social safety net has disappeared. The unions have been uh, completely eroded almost. You know, you've got, uh, I think, a deep sense of of uh, disturbance, of anxiety, the kinds of things that um, were associated with traditional masculinity, like having a career for life, owning property and therefore being marriageable. Those kind of traditional uh, signifiers of masculinity are no longer available to most men. So I think this creates a lot of uh, disturbance and a lot of anxiety just about surviving in the world, but also at a deeper level about what it means to be uh, a man. So it's a very complex constellation of things. I think uh, you've got cultural factors, you've got socioeconomic factors, you've got technological factors all coming together um, at the same time. And you know, economics is very complex, so it's easier to blame women and minorities for this state of affairs. And, and that's certainly something that's being um, subtly and in some cases not so subtly encouraged by uh, a lot of mainstream conservative politicians as well. Most Western governments do little or nothing to prevent this narrative, you know, because they're also deeply invested in neoliberal economic um, policies. But Andrew Tate appeals because there's a huge backlash in Western cultures at the moment against progressive movements, which is driven by the far right, the alt-right and conservative governments. And a lot of men feel that they've been screwed over um, by neoliberal capitalism. You know, they're working in the gig economy. They'll never be able to buy their own home. But instead of blaming neoliberal economics, it's easier to scapegoat easy targets like feminism uh, or immigrants. And we're seeing a lot of this, obviously, in Ireland at the moment. What issues are we seeing with young men now because of accounts like Tate's? A lot of what uh, a lot of the negative impacts that we're hearing about are coming from teachers who are uh, hearing a lot of stuff in their classrooms. They're receiving a lot of pushback from guys who are uh, followers of of Andrew Tate. So I think um, a lot of his followers feel kind of emboldened to parrot his misogynistic rhetoric, to openly humiliate women and girls, to you know to be much more overt uh, about. Um, about their misogyny. So he's kind of, it's, it's having this effect of legitimizing 
men who are already angry or sexist or raised in toxic environments. But I think probably more concerningly, he provides emotionally vulnerable uh, men with a kind of collective space to channel their misguided anxiety uh, or their anger. Um, And a lot of this derives from factors that have nothing to do with women really or nothing to do with feminism, but uh, rather the way in which they've been brought up you know, to suppress emotion, not to talk openly, not to have strong uh, emotional networks, maybe um, with their friends. So they're very emotionally vulnerable. And he is tapping into this. He's capitalizing on this. He's weaponizing it. He's monetizing it. Now, I want to bring in a clip here of our reporter, Dermot Pepper, who I spoke to before the podcast today. He spoke to some Irish teachers about their experience of the impact that Tate is having on children and teens. Here's what he found out. Well, I spoke to three teachers about this issue and all three were in agreement that it is a really big and um, real issue. One teacher said that in her 20 years of teaching, she's never seen someone capture the minds of our young students quite like Andrew Tate. And all the teachers made the point that uh, young students, particularly young male students, are very impressionable and that no one has impressed themselves upon young male students quite like Andrew Tate. And one of the teachers we spoke to, a philosophy teacher, made a very interesting point. She was breaking down the etymology of philosophy and how it means to love of wisdom. And she asked her students, can you think of any examples of wise people in the modern age? And she said that Andrew Tate was the name that came up. At the beginning, the teacher said they didn't quite know how to address it because in the first instance, they didn't really know who Andrew Tate was. But then once um, they came to terms with who he was and what to represent it, and realised that there was a very pressing need to push back against what he was saying. But there was a bit of hesitancy and uh, what's the best manner in which to tackle what he's saying. Um, One teacher from a school in Kildare said it's important, I suppose, to be in touch with internet culture and know what you're talking about and be confident what you're talking about um, because you don't want to seem out of touch, I suppose, when you're discussing these issues with young students. And another teacher in County Wicklow, who's a philosophy teacher, said that obviously her debate lends itself to discussion and debate around uh, topics such as Andrew Tate. And obviously not every school offers philosophy, but nevertheless, we approached the Teachers Union of Ireland and they said that the current um, updating of the SPHC curricula, that's social, personal and health education for both the junior and senior cycle, has the potential to create environments where you can talk about um, these threats in a safe and inclusive manner. So while your child's um, school or the school of a child that you know, mightn't have topics like philosophy which lend themselves to this. The Teachers Union of Ireland says there's still plenty of space within the school curriculum and school day to um, discuss these issues in a frank and forthright manner. Now, that was our reporter, Dermot Pepper, there speaking to me earlier. And you can read more about what teachers told him on the journal. But back to you, Debbie. Uh, I suppose really one thing about Tate's arrest is it shone a light onto this section of the internet, for better or worse. Based on your own research, how could schools, parents and wider society address the issues that are being raised by his popularity? Well, I mean, it's really important, obviously, to educate and talk to young people 
um, about this. But I think schools have to be very careful in terms of how they handle this, because in some ways, you know, they could be, in fact, uh, giving him more airtime uh, and more attention. And, and, you know, that's partly problematic or potentially problematic as well. I think it's really important to, that parents uh, and schools talk to uh, boys in particular about the amount of time they spend online, the kinds of messages um, they are receiving generally online, um, the perception of the world that they um, are forming from the amount of time they spend online rather than kind of looking uh, around them. But probably core is teaching empathy and teaching consent from a very young age. I don't mean sexual consent, which should start later at an, you know, uh, an appropriate age, but rather consent has to be a key part of uh, of children's education from, you know, from the very beginning of school. And I think that is key. It's also really important, obviously, to get the message across that feminism isn't anti-men. Um you know, there's, there's, it's very easy to, um, it's a bit like horoscopes, the kinds of ideas that they take from evolutionary psychology or the conspiracy, you know, the red pill kind of stuff. These are very appealing, simplistic, potent visual symbols. But they're, like I say, they're a bit like horoscopes. You can kind of fit any reality into them so that they seem like the truth. They're very um, engaging. And very um, appealing. So, you know, unless people are really going to dig down and look at statistics to do with, um, you know, the, the the gender pay gap or to do with domestic violence or to do with, you know, gender representation in in politics and business in in whatever, you know, you, you can ignore all that kind of stuff and just go straight for the the very populist, sensationalist uh, ideas. And, you know, that's what's happening. It's very, very easy to convince people with sound bites, with memes, with, um, you know, with vi short videos, etc., that these conspiracies are true or that feminism has gone too far or that feminism is, uh, is anti-men. And so we need to create potent counter messages, I think, to, to combat this deliberate disinformation campaign. Um, but also... We also need urgently to stop imposing gender norms on children from, you know, from birth, which limit their self-expression, which limit their capacity to empathize with others and to talk openly with with boys about relationships with girls, about consent, rather than putting all this focus, as I think is currently often the case on girls. You know, they bear a lot of the responsibility for this. And really, the focus has to be uh, on on boys when it comes to a lot of these issues. And Debbie, looking at Tate himself again, now he was banned from some social media for a while at least. What was it that led to that? Basically, the extreme nature of the misogynistic comments that he was making, videos in which he, in which he talks about uh, being violent towards women, subjugating women, um, etc. So I think it's the extremity of, of the content and also, obviously, the fact that he's so uh, high profile that enabled them to 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 remove his content and, and to ban him. 
So we've seen that Tate has been on the radar of some social media sites and there has been a willingness to tackle accounts like his. Do you think what happened with him now in recent weeks will serve as a learning experience in that sector? Yes and no. They've been pretty good at removing his accounts. But vast quantities of misogyny continue to go under the radar every day. And so in this sense, you know, Tate is a bit of a distraction in some ways. I've been researching the Manosphere since 2015, uh, approximately. And I've been researching, uh, you know, the whole issue of masculinity in crisis and disentitled, disenfranchised masculinity for about 20 years. So, uh, you know, the fact that Tate is putting all of this stuff on everyone's radar is in one way good, but in another way, it, it does in some ways, because he's so outlandish, because he's such a, a kind of crass, extreme uh, example of uh, of somebody who's so overtly misogynistic, in some ways it does kind of distract us from the fact that really extreme misogyny is, is a very everyday experience for a, a lot of women online. So, we, you know, we really need to take that into account as well. Finally, Debbie, I'm conscious that some of our listeners today may be parents or teachers and some of them may have teenagers in their lives. And listening to much of this, really, it would send your blood cold. Is there anything in particular that parents and guardians should be mindful of when it comes to teens and this type of online content? Yes, I suppose they they need to be paying attention uh, to, you know, to some of these talking points in terms of... Um, you know, the sense of, of disentitlement or anti-feminist rhetoric. Um, if they're hearing that, it's probably coming from one of these um, spaces. I think as well, you know, the mental health thing is is really, really troubling because Andrew Tate is pushing, and so are many other influencers, they're, they're kind of pushing this mental health um, agenda. And it's what's legitimating uh, his messages for many boys and young men, uh, and also I think they're they're genuinely believing it. But the mental health messages are the idea of self improvement that uh, Tate and his ilk espouse is really really problematic. It's it's about stoicism, it's about uh, being in control, it's about uh, in many ways a kind of emotional disconnection. Um, and, and uh, uh, maintaining power. And none of these things are useful. None of these things are going to help anybody uh, who has mental health issues. And in fact, you know, we need to be looking to uh, precisely the opposite of, of what uh, Tate is, is advocating here, which is, you know, uh, connecting with other people, being emotionally vulnerable, showing vulnerability, learning how to talk uh, about emotion, that it's not a weakness. I mean, he, he has said uh, really problematic things about um, mental health as well. He said that people seeking therapy are weak, uh, etc. So he's not a champion of any kind of positive uh, theory or philosophy uh, or model of, of mental health. And I think maybe that's the way in. Um, because if that's the thing that boys and young men are talking about is why they're attracted to him, well, then it's important to listen to to why um, they're attracted to his ideas, but maybe also to unpack them and to say, well, hang on, you know, this is not what's this. This doesn't uh, this doesn't help you. 
uh, develop as a human uh, at all. We, you know, you need to establish strong Thai communities. You need people you can talk to. You need to give. You need to do things for other people in order to be uh, fulfilled. You need to connect to the ecosystem uh, and, uh, and your position, you know, relativize your position in the world and come to terms with uh, with those sorts of things where Everything uh, Tate says is, is exactly the opposite of this. It's about disconnection from community, disconnection from the wider ecosystem, a highly individualist notion of, of uh, self-improvement. So I think that's maybe ha- uh, the way in to, uh, to discussing some of these issues. Many thanks for all of those insights, Debbie. They're really helpful. Thanks again to Dr. Debbie Ging, Associate Professor at DCU, for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by producers Eva Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.